Volume Two, Part Thirteen of Herodotus' Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Two, by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley. Volume Two, Part Thirteen. These were the words of Socles, the envoy from Corinth, and Hippias answered calling the same gods as Socles had invoked to witness, that the Corinthians would be the first to wish the Pisistrate back, when the time appointed should come for them to be vexed by the Athenians. Hippias made this answer, inasmuch as he had more exact knowledge of the oracles than any man, but the rest of the allies, who had till now kept silence, spoke out when they heard the free speech of Socles, and sided with the opinion of the Corinthians, entreating the Lacedaemonians not to harm a Greek city. His plan, then, came to nothing, and Hippias was forced to depart. Amyntas, king of the Macedonians, offered him Anthemus, and the Thessalonians Iolcus, but he would have neither. He withdrew to Sigium, which Pisistratus had taken at the spear's point from the Mytilenaeans, and where he then established as tyrant Hegesistratus, his own bastard son, by an Argive woman. Hegesistratus, however, could not keep what Pisistratus had given him without fighting, for there was a constant war over a long period of time between the Athenians at Sigium and the Mylatinaeans at Achillium. The Mylatinaeans were demanding the place back, and the Athenians, bringing proof to show that the Aeolians had no more part or lot in the land of Ilium than they themselves and all the other Greeks who had aided Menelaus to avenge the rape of Helen, would not consent. Among the various incidents of this war, one in particular is worth mention. In the course of a battle in which the Athenians had the upper hand, Achaeus the poet took to flight and escaped, but his armor was taken by the Athenians and hung up in the temple of Athena at Sigium. Alcaeus wrote a poem about this, and sent it to Mytilena. In it he relates his own misfortunes to his friend Melanippus, as for the Mylatinaeans and Athenians, however, peace was made by them between Periander, son of Cypselus, to whose arbitration they committed the matter, and the terms of peace were that each party should keep what it had. It was in this way, then, that Sigium came to be under Athenian rule, but Hippias, having come from Lacedaemon into Asia, left no stone unturned, maligning the Athenians to Artaphrenus, and doing all he could to bring Athens into subjection to himself and Darius. While Hippias was engaged in these activities, the Athenians heard of it, and sent messengers to Sardis, warning the Persians not to believe banished Athenians. Artaphrenus, however, bade them receive Hippias back, if they wanted to be safe. When his words were brought back to the Athenians, they would not consent to them, and since they would not consent, it was resolved that they should be openly at war with Persia. It was when the Athenians had made their decision, and were already on bad terms with Persia, that Aristagoras the Milesian, driven from Sparta by Cleomenes the Lacedaemonian, came to Athens, since that city was more powerful than any of the rest. Coming before the people, Aristagoras spoke to the same effect as at Sparta, of the good things of Asia, and how the Persians carried neither shield nor spear in war, and could easily be overcome. This, he said, adding that the Milesians were settlers from Athens, whom it was only right to save, seeing that they themselves were a very powerful people. There was nothing which he did not promise in the earnestness of his entreaty, till at last he prevailed upon them. 
It seems, then, that it is easier to deceive many than one, for he could not deceive Cleomenes of Lacedaemon, one single man, but thirty thousand Athenians he could. The Athenians, now persuaded, voted to send twenty ships to aid the Ionians, appointing for their admiral Melanthius, a citizen of Athens who had an unblemished reputation. These ships were the beginning of troubles for both Greeks and foreigners. Aristagoras sailed before the rest, and when he came to Miletus, he devised a plan from which no advantage was to accrue to the Ionians, nor, indeed, was that the purpose of his plan, but rather to vex King Darius. He sent a man to Phrygia, to the Paeonians who had been led captive from the Strymon by Megabazus, and now dwelt in a Phrygian territory and village by themselves. When the man came to the Paeonians, he spoke as follows. Men of Paeonia, I have been sent by Aristagoras, tyrant of Melitus, to show you the way to deliverance, if you are disposed to obey. All Ionia is now in revolt against the king, and it is possible for you to win your own way back safely to your own land. But afterwards we will take care of you. The Paeonians were very glad, when they heard that, and although some of them remained where they were for fear of danger, the rest took their children and women and fled to the sea. After arriving there, the Paeonians crossed over to Chios. They were already in Chios when a great host of Persian horsemen came after them in pursuit. Unable to overtake them, the Persians sent to Chios, commanding the Paeonians to go back. The Paeonians would not consent to this, but were brought from Chios by the Chians to Lesbos, and carried by the Lesbians to Doriscus, from where they made their way by land to Paeonia. The Athenians came with their twenty ships, as well as five triremes of the Etrians, who came to the war to please not the Athenians, but the Milesians themselves, thereby repaying their debt, for the Milesians had once been the allies of the Eritreans in the war against Chalcis, when the Samians came to aid the Chalcidians against the Eritreans and Milesians. When these, then, and the rest of the allies had arrived, Aristagoras planned a march against Sardis. He himself did not go with the army, but remained at Miletus, and appointed others to be generals of the Milesians, namely his own brother, Cheropinus, and another citizen named Hermaphentus. When the Ionians had come to Ephesus with this force, they left their ships at Choresus in the Ephesian territory, and marched inland with a great host, taking Ephesians to guide them on their way. They made their way along the river Caicus, and after crossing the Timolus, they came to Sardis and captured it without any resistance. They took all of it except the citadel, which was held by Artaphrenes himself with a great force of men. They were prevented from plundering the city by the fact that most of the houses in Sardis were made of reeds, and those made of brick had roofs of reeds. Accordingly, when one of these was set on fire by a soldier, the flames spread from house to house all over the whole city. While the city was burning, the Lydians and all the Persians, who were in the citadel, being hemmed in on every side, since the fire was consuming the outer parts, and having no exit from the city, came thronging into the market-place, and to the river Pactolus, which flows through the market-place, carrying down gold-dust from Timolus, and issues into the river Hermus, which in turn issues into the sea. They assembled in the market-place by this Pactolus, and were forced to defend themselves there. When the Ionians saw some of their enemies defending themselves, and a great multitude of others approaching, they were afraid, and withdrew to the mountain called Timolus, from where they departed to their ships at nightfall. In the fire at Sardis, a temple of Sebebi, the goddess of that country, was burnt, and the Persians afterwards made this their pretext for burning the temples of Hellas. 
At this time the Persians of the provinces this side of the Halys, on hearing of these matters, gathered together and came to aid of the Lydians. It chanced that they found the Ionians no longer at Sardis, but following on their tracks they caught them at Ephesus. There the Ionians stood arrayed to meet them, but were utterly routed in the battle. The Persians put to the sword many men of renown, including Eulcides, the general of the Eritreans, who had won crowns as victor in the games, and been greatly praised by Simonides of Sios. Those of the Ionians who escaped from the battle fled, each to his city. This, then, is how they fared in their fighting. Presently, however, the Athenians wholly separated themselves from the Ionians, and refused to aid them, although Aristagoras sent messages of earnest entreaty. Despite the fact that they had been deprived of their Athenian allies, the Ionians fervently continued their war against the king, for they remained committed by what they had done to Darius. They sailed to the Hellespont, and made Byzantium and all the other cities of that region subject to themselves. Then, sailing out from the Hellespont, they gained to their cause the greater part of Caria, for even Canus, which till then had not wanted to be their ally, now joined itself to them after the burning of Sardis. The Cyprians did likewise of their own free will, all save the people of Amanthus, for those two revolted from the Medes in such a manner as I will show. There was a certain Onesilus, a younger brother of Gorgas, king of the Salaminians, son of Chersus, whose father was Cyromus, and grandson of Ulthon. This man had often before advised Gorgas to revolt from Darius, and now, when he heard that the Ionians too had revolted, he was insistent in striving to move him. When, however, he could not persuade Gorgas, he and his faction waited till his brother had gone out of the city of Salamis, and shut him out of the gates. Gorgas, after having lost his city, took refuge with the Medes, and Onesilus, now king of Salamis, persuaded all Cyprus to revolt with him, all save the Amalthusians, who will not consent. He accordingly stationed his forces in front of their city, and besieged it. Onesilus then besieged Amalthus. When it was reported to Darius that Sardis had been taken and burnt by the Athenians and Ionians, and that Aristagoras the Milesian had been leader of the conspiracy for the making of this plan, he at first, it is said, took no account of the Ionians, since he was sure that they would not go unpunished for their rebellion. Darius did, however, ask who the Athenians were, and after receiving the answer he called for his bow. This he took, and placing an arrow on it, and shot it into the sky, praying as he sent it aloft, O Zeus, grant me vengeance on the Athenians. Then he ordered one of his servants to say to him three times, whenever dinner was sent before him, Master, remember the Athenians. After giving this order, he called before him Histaeus the Milesian, whom Darius had kept with him for a long time now, and said, I hear, Histaeus, that the vice-regent whom you put in charge of Miletus has done me wrong. He has brought men from the mainland overseas, and persuaded certain Ionians, who shall yet pay me the penalty for their deeds, to follow them, and has robbed me of Sardis. Now then, I ask you, do you think that this state of affairs is good? How did such things come to pass without any advice from your side? See to it that you do not have cause to blame yourself hereafter. To this Histaeus answered, My lord, what is this you say, that I and none other should devise a plan as a result of which any harm, great or small, was likely to come to you? What desire or feeling of deprivation would prompt me to do such a thing? All that you have is mine, and I am regarded worthy of hearing all your deliberations. If my vice-regent is indeed doing what you say, be assured that he has acted of his own accord. 
For myself, I cannot even go so far as to believe the report that the Milesians and my vice-regent were doing you some dreadful wrong. If, however, it is true that they are engaged in such activities, and what you, O King, have heard has a basis in fact, then you can see how unwisely you acted when you forced me to leave the coast. It would seem, then, that as soon as I was out of sight, the Ionians did exactly what their hearts had long been set on. If I had been in Ionia, no city would have stirred. Now send me off to Ionia right away, so that I may restore that country to peace, and deliver into your hands that vice-regent of Miletus, who has devised all this. Then, when I have done this to your satisfaction, I swear by the gods of your royal house that I will not take off the tunic I am wearing on my arrival in Ionia, until I have made Sardo, the largest of the islands, tributary to you. With these words Histeus successfully deceived Darius, who gave his consent and let him go, charging Histeus to appear before him at Susa when he had achieved what he promised. Now while the message concerning Sardis was making its way to the king, and Darius, having done as I said with his bow, held converse with Histeus and permitted him to go to the sea, the following events took place. When Onesilus of Salamis was besieging the Amathusians, news was brought him that Artibius, a Persian, was thought to be coming to Cyprus with a great Persian host. Upon hearing this, Onesilus sent heralds all through Ionia to summon the people, and the Ionians, after no long deliberation, came with a great force. So the Ionians were in Cyprus, when the Persians, crossing from Cilicia, marched to Salamis by land, and the Phoenicians were sailing around the headland which is called the Keys of Cyprus. In this turn of affairs the tyrants of Cyprus called together the generals of the Ionians, and said to them, Ionians, we Cypriots offer you the choice of engaging either the Persians or the Phoenicians. If you want to draw up your army on land, and try your strength against the Persians, then it is time for you to disembark and array yourselves on land, and for us to embark in your ships to contend with the Phoenicians. If, however, you desire rather to engage the Phoenicians, do so. But whichever you choose, see to it that Ionia and Cyprus become free." To this the Ionians answered, We were sent by the common voice of Ionia to guard the seas, not to deliver our ships to men of Cyprus and encounter the Persians on land. We will attempt then to bear ourselves bravely in the task which was given us. It is for you to prove yourselves valiant men, remembering what you suffered when you were enslaved by the Medeans. This was the Ionians' response, and when the Persian army afterwards arrived on the plain of Salamis, the Cyprian kings ordered their battle-line. They drew up the best of the Salaminians and Solians against the Persians, leaving the remaining Cyprians to face the rest of the enemy's army. Onesilus placed himself opposite Artibius, the Persian general. Now the horse which Artibius rode was trained to fight with infantrymen by rearing up. Hearing this, Onesilus said to his attendant, a carrion of great renown in war and a valiant man, I learn that Artibius's horse rears up and kicks and bites to death whomever he encounters. In light of this, decide and tell me straightway, which you will watch and strike down, Artibius himself or his horse. To this his henchman answered, My king, ready I am to do either or both, whatever you desire. Nevertheless, I will tell you what I think is in your best interest. To my mind, a king and a general should be met in battle by a king and a general. For if you lay low a man who is a general, you have achieved a great feat. Failing that, if he lays you low, as I pray he may not, it is but half the misfortune to be slain by a noble enemy. For us servants it is fitting that we fight with servants like ourselves, and with that horse. Do not fear his tricks, for I promise that he will never again do battle with any man. 
This, then, was his response, and immediately afterwards war broke out on land and sea. The Ionians in their ships, displaying surpassing excellence that day, overcame the Phoenicians, and it was the Samnians who were most brave. On land, when the armies met, they charged and fought. As for the two generals, Artibius rode against Onesilus, who, as he had agreed with his attendant, dealt Artibius a blow as he bore down upon him. When the horse struck his hoofs on Onesilus's shield, the carrion shore away the horse's legs with a stroke of his curved sword. It was in this way that Artibius the Persian general, together with his horse, fell. While the rest were still fighting, Stesenor, the ruler of Carium, allegedly an Argive settlement, played the traitor with a great company of men under him. The war-chariots of the Salaminians immediately followed their lead, and the Persians accordingly gained the upper hand over the Cyprians. So the army was routed, and many were slain, among them Onesilus, son of Chersus, who had contrived the Cyprian revolt, as well as the king of the Solians, Aristocyprus, son of Philosyprus, that Philosyprus whom Solon of Athens, when he came to Cyprus, extolled in a poem above all other tyrants. As for Onesilus, the Amethusians cut off his head, and brought it to Amathus, where they hung it above their gates, because he had besieged their city. When this head became hollow, a swarm of bees entered it and filled it with their honeycomb. In consequence of this, the Amethusians, who had inquired concerning the matter, received an oracle which stated that they should take the head down and bury it, and offer yearly sacrifice to Onesilus as a hero. If they did this, things would go better for them. This the Amethusians did, and have done to this day. When, however, the Ionians engaged in the sea battle of Cyprus, learned that Onesilus's cause was lost, and that the cities of Cyprus, with the exception of Salamis, which the Salaminians had handed over to their former king Gorgas, were besieged, they sailed off to Ionia without delay. Soli was the Cyprian city which withstood siege longest. The Persians took it in the fifth month, by digging a mine under its walls. So the Cyprians, after winning freedom for a year, were enslaved once more. Darices, Hemaeus, and Otanes, all of them Persian generals, and married to daughters of Darius, pursued those Ionians who had marched to Sardis, and drove them to their ships. After this victory they divided the cities among themselves, and sacked them. Darices made for the cities of the Hellespont, and took Dardanus, Abydus, Percote, Lampsacus, and Pasus, each in a single day. Then, as he marched from Pasus against Perius, news came to him that the Carians had made common cause with the Ionians, and revolted from the Persians. For this reason he turned aside from the Hellespont, and marched his army to Caria. It so happened that news of this was brought to the Carians before Darius's coming, and when the Carians heard, they mustered at the place called the White Pillars by the river Marcius, which flows from the region of Idria and issues into the Meander. When they had gathered together, many plans were laid before them, the best of which, in my judgment, was that of Pixodorus of Sindia, the son of Masolus, and husband of the daughter of Cyanesus, king of Cilicia. He proposed that the Carians should cross the Meander, and fight with the river at their back, so that being unable to flee and compelled to stand their ground, they might prove themselves even braver than nature made them. This opinion, however, did not prevail, and it was decided instead that the Persians, and not the Cilicians, should have the Meander at their back, the intent being that if the Persians were overcome in the battle and put to flight, they would not escape, but be hurled into the river. Presently, when the Persians had come and had crossed the Meander, 
they and the Carians joined battle by the river Marcius. The Carians fought obstinately for a long time, but at last they were overcome by the odds. Of the Persians as many as two thousand men fell, and of the Carians ten thousand. Those of them who escaped were driven into the precinct of Zeus at Armies at Lambrata, a large and holy grove of plain trees. The Carians are the only people whom we know who offer sacrifices to Zeus by this name. When they had been driven there, they deliberated how best to save themselves, whether it would be better for them to surrender to the Persians or to depart from Asia. While they took counsel, the Milesians and their allies came to their aid, whereupon the Carians put aside their former plans and prepared to wage a new war over again. They met the Persian attack and offered a heavier defeat in the battle than the first. Many of their whole army fell, but the Milesians were hardest stricken. The Carians, however, rallied, and fought again after this disaster, for learning that the Persians had set forth to march against their cities, they beset the road with an ambush at Pedasus. The Persians fell into this by night and perished, they and their generals, Duraces and Amorges and Sisimasis. With these fell also Myrsus, son of Gyges. The leader of this ambush was Heraclides of Milassus, son of Ibnolus. This, then, is how the Persians perished. Himaeus, who had been one of those who went in pursuit of the Ionians who marched on Sardis, now turned towards the Propontis, and there took Sias in Mysia. When he had taken this place, and heard that Darases had left the Hellespont and was marching towards Caria, he left the Propontis and led his army to the Hellespont, making himself master of all the Aeolians who dwell in the territory of Ilium, and of the Gergithae, a remnant of the ancient Trojans. While he was conquering these nations, however, Himaeus himself died of a sickness in the Troad. This is how he met his end, and Artaphrenes, viceroy of Sardis, and Otanes, the third general, were appointed to lead the army against Ionia and the Aeolian territory on its borders. They took Clazomene in Ionia and Sime in Aeolia. Aristagoras the Milesian, as he clearly demonstrated, was a man of little courage, for after he had disturbed Ionia and thrown all into utter confusion, he, perceiving what he had done, began to deliberate flight. Moreover, it seemed to him to be impossible to overcome Darius. While the cities were being taken, he accordingly called his fellow rebels together and took counsel with them, saying that it was best for them to have some place of refuge in case they should be thrown out of Melitus. He also asked them whether he should lead them from there to a settlement in Sardo, or Myrcinus in Edonia, which Hestaeus had received as a gift from Darius and fortified. Hecateus the historian, son of Hegesander, was of the opinion that they should set forth to neither of these places, but that Aristagoras should build a fortress in the island of Leros and reside there, if he were driven from Melitus. Afterwards, with this as a base, he could return to Melitus. Such was the advice of Hecateus, but Aristagoras himself thought it best to depart from Myrcinus. He accordingly entrusted Miletus to Pythagoras, a citizen of repute, and himself sailed to Thrace with any that would follow him, and then took possession of the place to which he had come. After this he was put to the sword by the Thracians, he and his army, as he was besieging a town, even though the Thracians were ready to depart from it under treaty. End of Volume 2, Part 13